Good afternoon. Today is Wednesday, the 25th of October, 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your hosts today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gersh. We're delighted to have Debbie Evans with us, plus a guest. Uh, we're going to get started with uh, Andrew Bridgen. Yesterday, he was uh, in the House of Commons uh, and under the 10-minute rule, he was uh, launching his Parliamentary Sovereignty Brackets Referendums Bill. Uh, so let's just uh, listen, first of all, to a couple of minutes of what he had to say. To move, but leave be given, to bring in a bill to prohibit Ministers of the Crown from making or implementing any legal instrument which is not consistent with the sovereignty of the United Kingdom Parliament unless it has been approved by a referendum and for connected purposes. So in conclusion, Madam Deputy Speaker, to even contemplate giving away these sort of powers to this sort of body, which affects not just the democratic rights, but indeed the human rights of every single man, woman and child in our nation, without a referendum, will be quite simply catastrophic. People have said this will lead to one world government, when in fact it's rather worse, it would be a one world dictatorship. Signing up to this treaty and binding ourselves with the WHO without a single debate on it, a single vote on it, or asking the general public what they think, would make being a member of the European Union look like a democratic paradise by comparison. That's why we need this bill. And I'm aware, Madam Deputy Speaker, that the looming prospect of prorogation, even if the House supports my motion today, the bill will fall in a few days' time. However, Madam Deputy Speaker, as the phrase goes, I will be back. I will be back. Okay, so he's referring. So the, the bill was uh, agreed to. So uh, it had its first reading yesterday. It has a second reading on the 24th of November, which is a Friday, of course. Uh, but uh, he's highlighting the point that uh, Parliament is coming towards its end. Uh, and therefore, it's practically uh, certain that, that this bill will not pass or could even get to the point of a vote before uh, this parliament ends and we're into the general election. So, uh, but he's saying he will be back. So he has launched uh, a website. If we just bring that on screen, uh, Save Our Sovereignty. And uh, if you have a look for that, you can keep uh, track of how this bill is going. And of course, he's talking about the international, uh, the health treaty with the World Health Organization, international health regulations and so on. Uh, and there's also a petition um, and the UK's membership of the World Health Organization it currently has 8,590 signatures. Uh, and uh, so clearly we suggest people sign. Uh, as, quick, as quickly as possible. Yes. Uh, but Debbie, uh, let's come back to what happened last Friday uh, when Andrew Bridgen held his uh, uh, debate on excess mortality. Yeah, good afternoon, everyone. And um, yes, you very uh, you covered it very well, actually, on Monday, uh, Andrew Bridgen's speech last week on excess deaths. And we found out what happened in front on the stage, if you like, no MPs present. And today we'd like to explore what happened behind the scenes. But before I do, um, if you go to the Heart website, as Mike rightly pointed everybody to on Monday, there is a transcript of Andrew Bridgen's debate. And the reason that I say that is because shortly after the debate, Andrew Bridgen tweeted, YouTube have taken down the speech I gave in Parliament today. I am an elected member of the UK Parliament. The speech was given in the chamber of the House of Commons and responded to by a government minister. What chance has anyone else got of putting their views on YouTube? So that's why I wanted to highlight back to the heart page where you'll receive a transcript. Many of you might remember the wonderful Alex Kelly, um, who we interviewed after the tragic death of her mum, after she'd received an AstraZeneca injection. And Alex was also the founder member of the UK CB Family Bereaved Legal Fund. And um, if anybody would like to donate to that, um, there is a donate page online. And today I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Alex, who was in the gallery, who was behind the scenes. And I just want to say welcome, Alex. But what happened in the gallery last Friday in the House of Commons? Um, hi, Debbie. Yes. Um, sorry, I'm at work, so I'm on a break. Um, but I, uh, I didn't actually manage to get in because they weren't allowing any more people in. Um, we queued up and um, there was benches of space and they were not allowing people in, which infuriated me because you know, this was so important to me, to, to many people who turned up. 
uh, Fiona, who uh, runs the Truth Be Told campaigns, works very closely with Andrew. And he had, um, well, both of them had said, look, you know, injured and bereaved to, to uh, sorry, to, to um, obviously hear the debate, opted to hear and put it forward and couldn't get in. Um, so I was absolutely raging. Um, there were spaces. Um, just, just to clarify also, um, I'm not found a member of UKCV. Um, it's CVIB Legal Fund, but I am a member of, of UKCV. Um, but yeah, I couldn't get in. And so many people that said there were spaces. So it was so disorganised. Um, I know many people were queuing up behind me. There was a guy from Australia who'd flown over just for this. He couldn't get in. Um, but it was unacceptable. There was, there was plenty of space. And I found out yesterday, one of the Truth Be Told uh, team that got in, um, she overheard one of the people at the door, usher or guard or whatever you call them, um, basically saying they need to quiet down because um, Mr. Sunak is not happy about the noise. He's in the building. So, excuse me, you're in the building as prime minister and you cannot turn up. I mean, obviously, I didn't expect him to, but you're in the building. And this is about deaths, excess deaths, and you're not turning up along with all the other MPs. Um, what I've sort of come away from it looking at now is actually they may have done us a favour because the blatant lack of care of our own MPs to turn up, mine included, was evident for everybody to see. They've shown themselves for, for who they are. They really have, as have the BBC, as far as I'm concerned. Tell us a bit about the BBC, Alex, because Mike showed us some screenshots and we might refresh viewers who don't know, but there were some yeah. screens, uh, banners put on as Andrew Bridgen was speaking. Tell us about what you heard about that. So I was downstairs. We uh, we went down to the parliamentary cafe because we thought, okay, well, at least we can see it on the screen if we can't get in now. And I genuinely thought there were subtitles just because the sound was really bad. But um, I couldn't believe what I was reading. Um, he, Andrew always goes off the data, up to date data. Um, he doesn't, you know, people call him conspiracy theorists, all this sort of thing. I may disagree with him on other things, but he's always up to date with the data. It's all he was reading off. Um, so to me and to everyone else in the cafe who was watching it, we were like, this just smacks of BBC propaganda. Uh, I couldn't believe what I was reading. All of the, the, the banners at the bottom with um, um, how safe the vaccines are. Well, my mother's dead, so that's incorrect. Even if it's just one person, they're not 100% safe. Going on about um, measles, the MMR. He, he, was, he was talking about the COVID-19 vaccines. And all you can see at the bottom, well, I, I presume you're, you're showing it, is um, to me, it was just BBC propaganda. So they themselves, <coughs> excuse me, have shown themselves up as well as the MPs. And I know so many people who are quite middle of the road saw that and were shocked. What are the BBC doing? It was just blatant propaganda in your face. Um, so, Alex, what, what have you done MPs. about? What have you done about this? Just for for, for viewers, because. You know, everybody says they want to do something. Everyone's very keen to take yeah. an action. And you've taken an action sure. on this. What have you done yeah. and what can viewers do? Well, I just want to say, Charlotte told me today from UKCB family, which I'm a member of, as I said, um, that they liaise and are working with have a support of 80 MPs. OK, so that's amazing. And UKCB do fantastic work. As I said, with Truth Be Told, I'm with UKCB and we've got my own legal fund. That, um, that my family are, are working on. Um, what I'd urge people to do, and I know it's a bore, and everyone's always like, oh, contact my MP, contact your MP. We need to flood these people. Why were they not there? I don't care it was a Friday. We're talking about death. It doesn't get bigger than this. Um, excess deaths are going up. This needs to be looked at, even if you don't agree that it's anything to do with the COVID-19 vaccines. You, you should be worried that this is happening, and they are not turning up. They can turn up for pay rise debates, they can fill the rafters with MPs then, but they don't turn up when it's about us um, and it's about the, the, the whole population. I mean, this is going on across the world. As I said, somebody flew in from Australia. So please, contact your MPs. Say, why weren't you there? Um, and also with the BBC, put in a complaint. I've done it. I've done both. I mean, my, my MP, I won't name him, but he's just shocking. Absolutely shocking. We have a death in the family from AstraZeneca. Proved. And he's still ridiculously pushing the, uh, the COVID-19 vaccine uh, uh, propaganda at me 
in in less in, in in his reply. So you know, I've got no time for him. But please contact your MP. Put your details on there. Contact the BBC and say what was what was that blatant writing on the bottom? Um, you know, we could we could obviously play back what Andrew was saying. Um, there was no need for any of that. So I know it's a bore, but please contact your MP. Demand why they weren't there and contact the BBC. Um, they're just showing themselves for who they are. They really are. Alex, thank you so much for joining us. I won't delay you any longer because I know that you're on your lunch break. But as you were speaking, you. you very kindly shared with us your complaint to the BBC. And you said that if viewers and the audience wanted to look at that and, and do something similar, please to contact the BBC and actually Ofcom and your MP. And just to make things extra easy, we've got a few addresses for you, direct email addresses. This ceoemail.org I really recommend it it's a great website so there you've got Tim Davies direct email address tim.davy at bbc.co.uk and Dame Melanie Dawes who was actually in a select committee this morning uh, a director CEO of Ofcom melanie.dawes at ofcom.org.uk so please everybody please do as Alex is, is clearly asking we really need to pick up the pace on this email your mp email bbc and email ofcom bombard them okay thank you debbie uh, and thanks to alex now just we just want to read uh, the complaint that alex has put in uh, to the bbc she says uh, bias and partiality uh, i wish to complain about the bbc reporting of andrew bridge in speech on the 10th the 20th of the 10th 23 in parliament bbc reporting must remain duly impartial as well as accurate and fair the distinction between matters grounded in fact and those which are a matter of opinion is vital. During Mr. Bridgen's speech, the BBC decided to display seven subtitles uh, to his speech. These were neither impartial, accurate or fair. Uh, one NHS says COVID-19 vaccines used in the UK are safe. Two official NHS guidance states that government administered vaccines are safe and often are essential for public health. These two subtitles appear to deny that six 1,183 claims uh, for VDPS as vaccine injuries uh, and that 119 claims have been accepted with a further 743 claims outstanding for over 12 months. Uh, the following four subtitles give information which Mr Bridging did not deny or comment on. He didn't talk about allergies, autism, measles or mumps. Uh, the inference of these subtitles is that Mr Bridging is anti-vaccine. He is open about the fact that he has had a COVID-19 vaccine and did not at any point deny the importance of other vaccines. Uh, the above shows how BBC reporting was neither impartial nor accurate nor fair. I await your response. Uh, so that is uh, a very good letter. It is worth the effort because, of course, the more uh, complaints that go into the BBC and to Ofcom, uh, the harder it is for them to uh, ignore. Uh, yeah. And uh, at the end of the day, we need some kind of uh, statement. Uh, so, Debbie, I don't know if you've got any final thoughts on this. Uh, well, my final thoughts are um, I've written about it in my blog this week. I'm absolutely appalled at the total disregard of the majority of MPs. I would like to thank, though, uh, Danny Kruger, MP, and Philip Davis, MP, for actually supporting Andrew Bridgen. But it's an absolute, utter disgrace. And as Alex said, <laughs> Rishi Sunak didn't like the noise, so they were told to quieten down. It's appalling simply appalling uh, yes okay yeah. Thank I, you. I, can i just stand in there I'd, I'd also encourage people to if they really um support andrew bridgen to thank him for what he did because of course hundreds thousands of letters coming into andrew bridgen can he can show those to other mps and show the amount of public support out there so there's tackling the system that's a good idea there's also showing support for andrew bridgen but interestingly enough, we never get very far away from the UK special propaganda machine, the BBC. A Ukraine war virtually disappeared. Um, and the reason is, of course, that it's now becoming ever more apparent that the Ukrainian counteroffensive has failed with horrific casualties. And now the Russians are starting to advance in key areas. I'm just going to put one little video clip up on, uh, uh, on screen, uh, which should uh, run. 
And uh, what you're going to see here is some tanks or armored vehicles. They're moving at the center of the screen from right to left and uh, a huge explosion. And that is the end of life for probably four or five men or possibly a lot more if they were armored personnel carriers. So the death and destruction goes on supported and made possible, of course, by the ammunition, the munitions poured in by particularly uh, the United States, but also the UK, the EU, NATO, and uh, what is really happening on the ground. Ukrainians in particular slaughtered, Russians dying uh, in a proxy war, which is designed to expand the Western power base. But the BBC's got very squeamish because, of course, it's not going as they expected. And so the Ukraine suffering or the suffering of Ukrainians is now drifting out of the BBC's um, sphere of interest. Well, let's move from that on to uh, Gaza. And uh, this headline, again, from the BBC, I just thought was breathtaking, if we can uh, bring that one up. Um, here we are. So it says live, this was from earlier this morning, Gaza hospitals stopping some services as UN warns fuel runs out tonight. This was such a... Uh, a dismissive headline. It could have been talking about problems in the NHS, that they've had to park some ambulances because they've run out of fuel. They haven't got enough people to make those things. Gaza hospitals stopping some services as UN warns fuel runs out tonight. Um, so my comment on this was, never mind the bombing, for some inexplicable reason, which the BBC can't understand, the Gaza hospitals have run out of fuel. I think this is a really offensive headline, um, not only for people in Gaza, but anybody in a war zone where the BBC is so utterly dismissive of their suffering. Let's just have a look at a few little clips of what's been happening in Gaza. And as we do this, I recognise that, of course, the suffering has also impacted on Israel but let's look at these clips of civilian areas in Gaza. Sorry. Are we okay? Yeah, we're okay. Well, it's pretty clear what's happening there, which is massive bombing of largely civilian areas. And of course, the death and destruction of families and children follows. But uh, let's look at what happens when those bombs hit the ground. So that's the reality of it. Huge explosions, massive buildings dropping to the ground, of course, killing everybody in them and anybody caught in the falling debris. That is the reality of the massive attacks that are taking place in Gaza. And uh, what's the result of the destruction of those buildings? Well, of course, it's casualties. Well, it's very harrowing. We're not going to show too much of those scenes, but that is the reality of what's on the ground, of course, with the full support of the UK Prime Minister, uh, Mr. Sunak, with the support of the Americans and Biden, with the support of the European Union. Nobody calling for the violence to stop, simply that Israel has its right to defend itself and Israel chooses to defend itself at the moment by a massive expansion in violence against many civilian targets. And if we bring on this picture, it was part of a video, but I'm just going to use it still. Uh, we've got a little... Sorry, Brian, sorry, I'm completely making a mess of this today. I no, it's okay. <laughs> okay. That's fine. Uh, a little girl who was uh, crying, pitifully crying out for her mother um, and her family. 
and I've just put some caption on there. Does it matter at the end of the day where these children are, whether they're in Gaza or whether they're in Israel, they are dying because politicians in UK, uh, in the United States and the EU simply will not put a stop to the violence, which they could do overnight if they reined in the Israeli attacks. Now, let's have a look at uh, the reality, or la-la land, I'm calling it, of politics in UK. And I'm focusing here on Keir Starmer and another BBC article. It said in an interview with LBC on the 11th of October, Sakir was asked whether it was appropriate for Israel to cut off the supply of power and water to Gaza as part of a siege of the territory. Uh, he said, I think that Israel does have that right. Obviously, everything should be done within international law, but I don't want to step away from the core principles that Israel has a right to defend herself. Uh, it went on, the article went on, on Sunday, amid criticism over the comments, Sakir visited the South Wales Islamic Centre in Cardiff and met congregants and leaders from the Muslim community. And then he said this, well, it's commenting on what he later said, in a statement later posted to X, formerly Twitter, he said he'd been deeply moved to meet people at the centre and to hear their pain and horror at the suffering of civilians in Gaza. I made, I made clear it is not and has never been my view that Israel had the right to cut off water, food, fuel or medicines. International law must be followed. Now, I've said Keir Starmer's from La La Land. Well, of course, he doesn't support Parliament. He said uh, publicly he supports Davos. Uh, but what the man is demonstrating is that he's holding two opposing views simultaneously, uh, which is a classic sign of mental instability. So we've got the breakdown of the thought processes of politicians because they cannot deal with the reality, the common sense position and what the forced political line is, which uh, is clearly to support Israel at all costs. Let's have a look at the little clip, which I did show a couple of days ago, but we'll put it up again, of um, Ursula von der Leyen uh, talking about those nasty Russians. Yesterday, we saw again Russia's targeted attacks against civilian infrastructure, targeted attacks on civilian infrastructure with a clear aim to cut off men, women, children of water, electricity and heating with the winter coming, these are acts of pure terror. And we have to call it as such. Yesterday we saw again Russia's terror. Well, there we are, a classic uh, piece of footage. Judge the position, uh, von der Leyen, of course, accusing the Russians of terrorism by virtue of her claims that they're bombing civilian areas, they're cutting off power, they're cu cutting off water infrastructure. And underneath, the social media blogger has put film footage of exactly what Israel is doing uh, to people in Gaza. But von der Leyen stays supporting that Israeli policy, whatever. Um, there has been some backlash, however. So if we have a look at this Politico Politico article. It says the von der Leyen doubles down on pro-Israel stance and lashes out at Iran. But this has produced a backlash because some 800 EU staff took the unusual step of writing to her at the end of last week to protest against what they see as unjustifiable bias towards Israel in the Israel-Hamas war. The protest came after the president neglected to mention the EU's EU support for Palestinian statehood in a speech on Thursday in Washington, despite a two-state solution being a core part of the position of European countries. So there's nothing fair, there's nothing common sense about what this woman is doing. She is simply going to stick to the pro-Israeli line, whatever. But luckily, there is some backlash. Let's just uh, end, really, with this little clip of uh, the BBC reporting and how they have carefully selected their language when they're talking about casualties. All including 61 children have died in Gaza. 12 people, including two children, have been killed in Israel. Those figures come from officials. 
Well, it's pretty easy, that one, that uh, if you're a child in Gaza, you just die. You just die. But if it's a child in, uh, in uh, Israel, then you are killed. And clearly the BBC has carefully chosen that language to influence the view and opinion of people watching the BBC propaganda. So uh, the BBC has been criticised uh, both by Alex Kelly uh, this morning and by Brian. And so let's bring NewsGuard uh, on screen because NewsGuard, as we have reported before, is part of the disinformation industrial complex. It's all about uh, making sure that uh, anybody is providing transparent or that they claim they're providing transparent, accountable trust ratings for thousands of news outlets. And of course, uh, they have decided to uh, renew uh, for a further year the trust rating for the UK column. Uh, and well, I'm delighted to say that they have given us a trust rating of 27.5 out of 100. Uh, and uh, they say that we should proceed, that anybody watching the UK column or reading content on our website should proceed with maximum caution uh, because the UK column website is unreliable because it severely violates basic journalistic standards. Well, I'm going to say if the basic journalistic standards that NewsGuard is talking about are those represented by the BBC, then I'm happy and delighted to be violating those basic journalistic standards. Uh, so let's look at these specific allegations against us. Uh, they say that we uh, that we do publish uh, repeatedly publish false or egregiously misleading content. Uh, they say that we do not gather and present information responsibly. They say that we regularly cor don't regularly, sorry, correct or clarify errors. Uh, they say that uh, that we do not handle the difference between news and opinion responsibly. Uh, and the other one that they are really having a go at us on is that we do not disclose ownership and financing. And of course, uh, that is particularly untrue. Well, they're all untrue, but that, that one is untrue because we have said many, many times and we have said on the website uh, that we are funded by you, our members, uh, and that is our only source of funding. Um, now, they are very pleased that we avoid deceptive headlines. Uh, they are pleased that we do reveal who's in charge and that we do reveal any possible uh, conflicts of interest. Uh, and they're happy that uh, the site names, that's UK column names, uh, content creators, along with either contact or biographical information. But if you want to know more about NewsGuard, uh, do go and have a look at uh, the censored page on the UK Column website, uh, which takes you through a timeline of how this uh, disinformation industrial complex has built itself. Uh, and you'll find that at ukcolumn.org slash censored. Uh, so then uh, let's have a look at this. Uh, this is the European Data Protection Supervisor meeting, uh, which has just taken place. Thank you to all the speakers and the audience for taking, place in, uh, taking part in the uh, seminar that they have held on child sexual abuse material proposal. So this is the EU's proposal on how to deal with child sexual abuse material. Um, and uh, the proposal is basically that uh, platforms that are providing online chat services, for example, any encrypted services, uh, would be required uh, to scan for child sexual abuse material um, uh, as it's being uploaded uh, and uh, therefore breaking end-to-end uh, -end encryption and so on. Now, this is something which was absolutely universally at this event, or at least significantly universally, uh, derided as being anti-democratic uh, and pretty horrendous. So let's just bring uh, the uh, supervisor of the European Data Protection, supervisor of the main man on screen, not going to try to pronounce his name, uh, basically saying that the EU's proposals could bring consequences that go well beyond uh, concerns with the protection of children. This is uh, by far the, the uh, feeling of people that are involved in privacy issues, uh, many legislators as well, and certainly the people taking part in this particular event. And just to remind you of the Index for Censorship uh, comments on the online safety bill, which, by the way, Debbie reminded me before the news program, uh, receives royal assent tomorrow. So thank you, Debbie, for reminding me of that. Uh, but just, just remind ourselves what they were saying, the index for censorship on censorship were saying about the Online Safety Act, as it will be tomorrow. Uh, the provisions in the act that would enable state-backed surveillance of private communications contain some of the broadest and most powerful surveillance powers ever proposed by a Western democracy. It means that the UK would be one of the first democracies to place a de facto ban on end-to-end -end encryption for private messaging apps. And uh, the, you know, the British government, 100% using the issue of child sexual abuse material, which they haven't really cared about at any point, uh, as far as I'm aware, uh, in the past. Uh, 
It's suddenly become an issue uh, because it's a great way to front up the argument uh, that we should be preventing people using encrypted messaging apps uh, and so on. Now, uh, a couple of years back, uh, Apple attempted to uh, Im implement a scanning mechanism for child sexual abuse material uh, on iCloud, which is their um, cloud storage platform. And that got such a huge backlash from their users that they were forced to absolutely abandon this idea completely. Um, so this was a report from uh, uh, September the 1st, 2023, uh, talking about the fact that they had uh, abandoned their plan to detect uh, child sexual abuse material in iCloud photos. Uh, but this, uh, the, the, the dropping of this idea happened uh, quite some time ago. Um, my point here is the backlash to Apple's decision to attempt to uh, implement this type of scanning was such that they could not proceed with it. And we need the same type of backlash uh, for legislators, uh, not only in the UK, but uh, across Europe and the world. Uh, this is not about protecting children, uh, which we can uh, absolutely show governments across the world have not been attempting to do in any way up to this point. Yeah, and I'll, I'll just add that uh, to that, Mike, that, uh, of course, it was only a couple of years ago that we had the ICSA inquiry running you know, into a massive supposed um, inquiry into child abuse in the UK. But at the end of the day, the documentary reports came out, but what actual action was taken on the ground. A few prosecutions of pretty elderly people from their crimes in the past, and otherwise things carry on as normal, including the state stealing children through the secret family courts. All of that still goes on uh, completely unchanged. Okay, if you uh, like what the UK Column is doing, you would like to support us, uh, please join us. Uh, you can do that at community.ukcolumn.org. Uh, your membership helps us uh, immensely. As we said a few minutes ago, this is the only way we are funded. And without your support, we can't do what we're doing. So uh, thank you to everybody that's supporting us at the moment, but please join us if you can. Uh, you can pick something up, including the new uh, MHRA Not Fit for Purpose t-shirt, uh, which for anybody waiting, they are on their way. They'll be here very, very soon and they'll be uh, posted out. They're still available for pre-order uh, and uh, that's at shop.ukcom.org. Uh, but please do share anything you find on the various platforms, especially ukcom.org and ukcomextracts.co.uk. And Debbie, uh, your latest blog is up. It is indeed. And as uh, I discussed earlier, uh, Andrew Bridgen and Maria Caulfield are on my radar. My message to MPs as well. And uh, why are Switzerland, uh, the Swiss government, sending iodine tablets to 5 million of their population? And why could the Gaza Strip be the city of the future too? Interesting conversation pieces, I think. Okay, thank you. Uh, Debbie, let's move on to health issues. Yeah, let's. Um, so this is, I've been very fortunate in um, following a friend and UK column viewer, um, her journey in the NHS. And I just want to define what is data, because as we've heard from Ben Rubin many times, data is very important in the NHS. And we've got platforms and companies like Palantir involved who are attached to the CIA. So data is the factual, inf factual information, such as measurements or statistics, used as a basis for reasoning, discussion or calculation. And then we look at data mining. What is the definition of data mining? So according to Merriam-Webster, the data mining is the practice of searching through large amounts of computerized data to find useful patterns or trends. Well, that's very interesting because what I want to find out is what is going on in the NHS to possibly many people that are watching now. And this is probably news that some people may have heard of and some people may not even know that's going on. So the Royal Cornwall Hospital Trust sent my friend a letter and on the letter it says for an appointment you will be contacted by Ultramed, an online pre-assessment to complete a questionnaire prior to attending for your investigation. Please note if you fail to complete this may result in your procedure being delayed or cancelled. You will be required to answer questions about you, your health 
and your procedure. So uh, it's like, really, who are ultrameds? And do we have a choice? Is there a choice or have we got to fill in this questionnaire? So I went to have a look at the company, Ultramed. And what Ultramed say is that they work with healthcare professionals to deliver cost and time effective solutions for pre-operative and pre-procedural assessments. Our person-centered approach ensures we offer products that work not only for the healthcare provider, but for patients too. So what are the benefits then of using a company like Ultramed? Well, it's interesting because the benefits, of course, aren't to us <laughs> at all. They are to the NHS long-term plan. So the key benefits of Ultramed is that it facilitates the long-term uh, plan. This is to reduce F2F means face-to-face, -to, -face, to reduce face-to-face -face outpatients consultants by a third. Also saves clinicians time because it's you that's going to be entering the data which means that the clinician doesn't have to. So you're going to be doing the work. It also means that your test results are going to be available apparently before a remote face-to-face -face consultation. And let's not forget the carbon reduction, of course, because people won't need to travel. All they'll need to do is input their data and there's no upfront capital cost. So clearly you can see that there are plenty of benefits for Ultramed. Right, but sorry, sorry, Debbie, just before, just before we move on for that, I just wanted to look at the last one. So procurement is from G Cloud 12. So we're looking at Google Cloud. This is where this data is being stored. Oh, we'll come on to that in, again in a minute. Yes, uh, we can see exactly where the data is being stored. It, it, gets, uh, it gets even murkier. But who are Ultramed working with is what I wanted to know next. And there's a whole array of NHS trusts that they're working with. Is yours one of them? But having said that, as we'll come on to in a minute, you don't actually have to be in that NHS trust to get an invitation for Ultramed. But we'll, we'll look at that in a minute. But Ultramed have been receiving awards as well. Um, and on the 27th of June this year, uh, King Charles awarded Ultramed the um, Enterprise, the King's Award for Enterprise and Innovation. And Paul, who's the CEO of the company, we'll come back to Paul in a minute, um, he had a great time uh, receiving this award. So let's look a little bit deeper at um, Ultramed because they're also, you'll see a couple of a couple of things that you recognize in the next screenshot. Um, you'll see that they're funded by Innovate UK, which is a, a, a technically funded from the government for innovations for the UK, all part of the life sciences agenda. And there you can see, I had to highlight it in yellow, is the MHRA. So I can assume from this that the data that you input gets sent to the MHRA, of course, like the CPRD, um, uh, the website, uh, the CPRD, sorry, register that goes to G GPs. So we've got a lot of involvement with the MHRA. But who's Paul? Who was the Paul that had a great time when he went to get the award? So Paul is Dr. Paul Upton. He's the co-founder, along with Alan Sanders, who's the creative design director. But Dr. Paul Upton is actually a consultant anaesthetist. And he was at the Royal Cornwall Hospital Trust. He's also been um, in a few working groups of NICE. But he actually started this organisation back in um, 2014. But it all started in Cornwall and their headquarters are based in Penryn down here. But they're not just in the pre-operative business, which we'll see in a minute. They're also in outpatients. So if you want an outpatients appointment or you're waiting for an outpatients appointment, it could be that you receive a text asking you to access a link which will take you to Ultramed where you have to enter all of your details for your outpatients appointments. This covers all sorts of outpatient appointments. Um, as you'll see in the next slide, we've got breast surgery, ophthalmics, urology, lower gastrointestinal, upper gastrointestinal, gynae, rheumatology, you name it, you've, you've got it in there too. Um, and then also when we go to the pre-op, because don't forget they do pre-op as well, and we look at what they're looking at in the pre-operative assessment. So they'll send you a text to ask you to fill in um, a, a whole questionnaire. We're looking at they've got a kids 
They've also got one for cardiac catheterizations and cardiac investigations, endoscopies, so colonoscopies, gastroscopies, sigmoidoscopies, etc. And IR is that stands for interventional radiology services. So do you have to fill in this questionnaire? And actually, when you go into the privacy, when you go into the website and start looking at their privacy agreement, you can see that it clearly says, if you decide to register with us and one of our software products. So actually, you don't have to fill in this questionnaire at all. However, if we go on one, when go further into their privacy policy, you can see the disclosure of information. And actually, if you do decide to register with them, then you can be sure that your personal information is going to be made uh, available to all sorts of people. Their subsidiaries is what they call them. So you're talking business partners, suppliers, subcontractors. In fact, they can pretty much disclose your information with anybody, uh, anybody they want. But where is this information stored? And as Mike rightly said, we were looking at Google earlier, but where they're storing it, they say that it has to be transferred to outside the European Economic Area, the EEA. And this is due to our hosting site, Square, Squarespace, being outside of this area. We always ensure your data is only transferred in full accordance with UK data protection laws. By submitting your personal data, you agree to this transfer, storing or processing we will take all steps reasonably necessary to ensure that your data is treated securely and in accordance with this policy. Now, Squarespace, I can tell you now, is based in the USA. In fact, its uh, headquarters are in New York, and it was funded by a £30,000 grant uh, by a guy called um, Anthony Casalina, and he founded this um, ages, ages ago. So it's been one of these up and coming new innovative companies, but basically your data will be stored in New York. So if you want to find out more, you can go through their website and look at the pre-operative questionnaire that they um, ask you to fill in. And you'll see there that they've also been endorsed by the um, Association of Anaesthetists. So pre-op, um, but I, I would I would encourage everybody actually to go into the website, but I've been looking very closely at how my friend has been dealt with Ultramed. And she, when she went to her initial appointment, her outpatient's appointment, of which she'd had to register online, which she didn't like doing, as soon as she'd had her appointment, she was red alerted for an invasive procedure. She thought she'd get a letter. But no, literally within hours of leaving the appointment, she got bombarded by texts and she very kindly allowed me to screenshot the texts and she was getting them on a daily basis until I said to her, why don't you phone the hospital and say that you don't agree to signing up to the privacy policy of Ultramed? There has to be an alternative. They have to offer you an alternative. And when she did phone the hospital, the hospital actually agreed with her and said, no, we, do, we, we agree, we, we wouldn't want to sign that privacy policy either. And we wouldn't want to ask, answer very, very intimate questions. And the questionnaire is quite detailed. So she did get an appointment by refusing to go on to Ultramed by refusing to decide to register with them and by insisting that the hospital gave her another alternative. So there, this is a choice, so you're not forced into doing this. However, my great thanks to Stefan, one of our viewers, who after I hinted about Ultramed last week on Extra, wrote this um, email to me to say that his partner had also been bombarded by Ultramed. Now, his partner's in Devon, and Devon isn't actually one of the NHS trusts that Ultramed say they're working with. So clearly, clearly the information is going between trusts and Ultramed are getting their tentacles pretty much everywhere. And very sadly, um, Stefan's uh, partner has declined to fill it in and seems to have dropped off the radar. And this is what I'm worried about is that many people are saying they don't want to fill it in quite rightly. And I'm saying don't fill it in, 
just say no because there is an alternative. There really is, but you must contact your hospital and say that you don't agree to signing up to any of these privacy agreements with any of these companies. Just say no. Okay, thank you, Debbie. Uh, and uh, just sticking with health uh, for a little bit, let's uh, just bring this on screen because this is Harvard Medicine uh, and their uh, latest report here, COVID's damage lingers in the heart. Uh, researchers increasingly find that the effects of infection by SARS-CoV-2 extend to the cardiovascular system. Uh, this is what they say. As the COVID-19 pandemic was getting underway in early 2020, doctors in Wuhan, China, began to report that many patients hospitalized with the disease had cardiac injuries. Heart attacks were frequent, especially in patients with underlying risk factors. Uh, and there were numerous cases of myocarditis, which occurs in the heart muscle layers become inflamed. Uh, roughly a quarter of patients with severe COVID-19 had elevated blood levels of troponin, a protein marker for cardiac damage. Uh, and it goes on to say that hospitalizations and deaths from COVID-19 have since fallen off, the result of widespread vaccinations and the population's growing immunity against severe disease. But SARS-CoV-2, the coronavirus that causes COVID-19, is still with us, along with the risks it poses to heart health, especially in people with blocked arteries, hypertension, diabetes, and other predisposing factors. Uh, millions of people who recover from COVID-19 have gone on to deliver to develop lingering cardiovascular symptoms, including abnormal heartbeats, dizziness, and shortness of breath. And of course, this article doesn't discuss effects of vaccination at all. Uh, and so my question is that uh, if we believe what this says, uh, and uh, they claim that SARS-CoV-2 creates heart issues for people, um, then uh, and we are basing our vaccination regime upon the key toxic element within SARS-CoV-2, which is a spike protein, then uh, if they were aware that SARS-CoV-2 was creating heart problems in 2020, how were they not aware of the potential risks of heart problems as a result of the vaccines? How could they ever have made the claim that the vaccines were going to be safe? There are a whole bunch of questions around this that need to be asked. Uh, but I just want to very briefly then follow up with this. And this is the latest from the MHRA. Uh, new guiding principles for predetermined change control plans. And this is pretty uh, problematic, really, because this is about uh, AI and uh, so-called so machine learning uh, with medical uh, products. So any medical products that are associated with uh, AI and, and machine learning in particular, because it's very concerned that whenever a new medical product or, uh, is created or a medical product is amended in any way, it has to go through a regulatory process. And if uh, at the back of your medical product is AI or machine learning, then there, there are new versions of that rolled out on a regular basis and the regulatory burden would be just too much for the MHRA. So they want to create these predetermined change control plans, which means that these companies don't have to do any regulatory uh, assessments at all as they amend their products or develop new products and so on. So they're claiming that they've got five new principles around th that the uh, products need to be focused and bounded, risk-based assessments done, evidence-based assessments done, uh, transparency has to be there, uh, and total product lifecycle perspective, whatever that means. Uh, well, that means uh, to improve the quality and integrity of a PCCP by continually cons considering the perspectives of all stakeholders. But of course, the stakeholders don't include uh, you or I that are on the receiving end of, of these products, but this is all about reducing the regulatory burden on the companies that are producing these products. Uh, and uh, therefore, uh, how can there be proper uh, safety uh, valuations if, if effectively the regulatory burden is removed? Uh, because they don't want any safety uh, factor in the development of these uh, experimental vaccines, Mike, is the answer to that one. Yes. Well, let's uh, move to the subject of Israel. And, uh, of course, we should remember that uh, uh, Netanyahu was very keen that the whole of the Israeli population was vaccinated. And, of course, um, people in Israel have suffered adverse effects, have, as they have in UK and worldwide. But... Uh, Let's come in on this Haaretz article, and the headline really says it all. Again, Israel is choosing death. Uh, now, I'm just going to read uh, a couple of paragraphs, and what we're really seeing, we're seeing that Israelis are being subjected to uh, psychological pressure 
as a result of what's coming through on news programs. So uh, it starts off here. The massacre in the Gaza border communities is the new formative ethos of Israeli society. It's a perfect and horrifying welding of the Holocaust and the horrors of the Nazis to Hamas and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. According to the new ethos, the slaughterers are not Hamas members alone, but all of Palestinian society in Gaza and in the Palestinian Authority. From now on, all the Palestinians and Nazis marked for death to be conquered, expelled, killed. So, um, since the massacre of 1,400 people on October the 7th in a string of border communities, Israelis who are holed up in their homes awaiting the next phase of the war are gathering in front of four TV channels which are constantly broadcasting testimony from the massacre and the abduction of the hostages, Israeli society is stuffing itself with an assembly line of stories of bereavement. They are considered good for morale. The wait is being prolonged, the ground attack is being delayed, and the stories continue to flow. And it goes on. They don't help pass the time. They become time itself. They reinforce the basic deep Israeli narrative. Jews are the innocent victims of horrifying Nazi murderousness. There's a huge number of stories which are shaping a collective consciousness. Israeli citizens are undergoing a shift in consciousness now. They're turning into an enlisted society, a nation that's an army, a nation of heroes, a united nation as one together. And finally, it uh, points a finger at Netanyahu. We're led by a man who, even before the massacre, managed to cause the country more damage than it has ever experienced, an architect of the inferno. This is the man who Israel is following, as usual, with typical obedience, while sacrificing the hostages to the rhythm of the drums of war. The Holocaust logic, Israel is once again choosing death. An Israeli death is always the most justified an unavoidable death of all. There's a lot to ref, uh, reflect on in this article because it's showing the intense pre pressure that the Israeli population are under. Now let's jump from that to the subject of Unit 8200, which is the Israeli intelligence unit that I've warned about uh, for years. And I'm going to come back on once again for anybody that hasn't seen uh, this diagram, uh, we're showing that uh, Francis Maud, as part of the Conservative government in March 2014, set up a memorandum of understanding on what was called digital government. Uh, but of course, it linked digital government not only with universities, but also Israeli Defence Force Unit 8200, which you can see top left. And uh, if we add a bit more, we've just chosen one country uh, company, but many uh, companies dealing with data, startup and large data, internet data, um, have got uh, people serving who originally came from Israeli Unit 8200, which is essentially Israeli military intelligence. And if I just uh, highlight, of course, that's the same unit that we showed in the first diagram. And we asked the question, when did the British public ever agree to Israeli military surveillance of their our private lives. Now, I'm going to say a very big thank you to somebody who pointed me at a clip. I've taken a small excerpt from it, but let's have a look at this vice report on Israeli intelligence unit 8200. We spoke with Israeli journalist and senior defense correspondent, Alon Ben David. As a very small community, that is practically an island. You are completely surrounded with nations that you cannot cross to. Israel developed creativity uh, to compensate for its lack of resources. And it is a country that needs to conduct constant surveillance on the neighbors. As a country which is under constant annihilation threat by other nations, Israel understood many years ago that going into wars and launching massive military operations, it bears almost unbearable prices first in human lives, in, in terms of economic costs, in terms of international legitimacy. So cyber was the right answer for many things that Israel needed to do. Do you think Israel's private cyber security industry is essentially the child of the Israeli military's affairs? Oh, absolutely. The whole of the Israeli cyber industry relies on knowledge gathered by, by people serving in Israel's different security agencies and the military. 
military service is mandatory for most Israeli citizens. And one of the largest parts of the Israeli Defense Force is its cyber and intelligence units. These entire units and some 20,000 cyber soldiers are now being relocated to Beersheba, a desert city which is quickly becoming Israel's Silicon Valley. This military-industrial cyber complex is said to be the largest infrastructure project in Israel's history. We spoke with the CEO behind this $5 billion undertaking, Ronnie Zahavi. What's the significance of the military being a part of all of this? Because going to the service is compulsory, you can look at the Israeli army as the largest HR organization in the world. Because practically speaking, they start scanning the layers of the Israeli population and position the right people in the right places, especially in elite units. So if you think about it, you take somebody who is 18 years of age and you get them exposed to the state-of-the-art technology, to the highly advanced paradigms and methodologies. So when they go out of the service at the age of 23, 24, from an IBM point of view, or from EMC point of view, or from Intel point of view, somebody has already, con already conducted the screening and already selected the best they can get in that sense. A really comprehensive little documentary encouraged people to go and watch it, but we're getting the background that if we're dealing with Unit 8200, we are dealing with deep state Israeli uh, military intelligence, which the conservatives under David Cameron, Francis Maud, have locked in against universities in UK, but also against our own security services. So we can ask the key question, has it been the Israeli unit 8200, which helped set up and train our 77 brigade? And to my mind, the chances are very high that that has indeed happened. But did the UK population ever agree to this partnership? And did we ever agree to data being shared? Because there is no question that data is being shared. What happens with it? What sort of data might be shared? And what happens with data uh, that these, these Israeli units get hold of? Let's look at the second clip. And in 2014, 43 former members of H200 wrote an open letter to the Prime Minister, refusing to serve because of the unit's widespread use of surveillance. We met with one of the soldiers who signed the letter. Israeli intelligence is everywhere, literally everywhere in the Palestinian territories. Doesn't matter whether they're suspect of something or not, whether they're political activists or whatever, no one's off limits. What's wrong with that? If you're at war with another people and you've got complete surveillance, that sounds like quite a, an advantage. The problem is when it goes beyond plain security. If someone's about to do an attack in Tel Aviv, then I could see why we'd want to know where he is or where he's going. But if you've got his brother, his sister, his cousins, his cousin's friends, all of them tapped as well, then that's where it clearly crosses the line. If you find out that someone might be having an affair, someone is gay, when you come across that information, instead of it being put away as irrelevant, it's something that you would send forward and it would be used. If someone's cheating on their wife and Unit 200 have discovered this, what's the benefit of having that information? Israel can approach them and get them to cooperate one way or another, be it get some information, go photograph some places, and what they get out of it is their secret is not been revealed. It's blackmail. Yeah, you can call it blackmail. Well, there you have it. Very simply, the data is collected not just on people who are regarded as, uh, uh, as potential terrorist threats, but anybody around them. And what is that data used for? It's used for control by blackmail. So we can ask a question. Is data that's coming from the West freely passing through to uh, the Israeli security organizations? Um, does that allow them to use blackmail on people based in the West in order to get Western people, for example, politicians, to do the bidding of the Israeli government? Many, many questions to be asked. But of course, remember the key fact that at no stage was the UK public consulted on whether they wanted a partnership with this uh, very, very devious Israeli intelligence system. 
And I think many people should be questioning their MPs on this arrangement, particularly against the background of friends of Israel through both the Conservative and the Labour parties. I'll leave it to our audience to decide. Okay, we're just going to end with uh, with China and the expansion of war to China, certainly something that our intelligence agencies seem to be very keen to, to do and our governments. Uh, last week, I was talking about uh, this meeting uh, in uh, California at Stanford University with the Five Eyes, uh, heads of the Five Eyes intelligence agencies here uh, from the US, UK, Australia, Canada, New Zealand. Uh, and they were talking about uh, China the, basically hoovering up uh, all the Western technologies and so on. That was followed up. That meeting was then followed up with uh, uh, Christopher Ray, the FBI director, speaking 60 Minutes uh, with Scott uh, Pelley. Uh, and uh, Pelley was uh, calling China uh, the greatest espionage threat democracy has ever faced. Um, and Ray said, uh, the People's Republic of China represents the defining threat of this generation, this era. There's no country that presents a broader, more comprehensive threat to our ideas, our innovation, our economic security, and ultimately our national security. And I just want you to think about those words in the context of what I was reporting on Monday's program and on Friday's program about China and the Belt and Road Initiative and so on and, and the language come out of, come out of China. Uh, Pelly then said to him, but all countries spy. Um, and uh, this, this time it was the Australian intelligence uh, head, Mike Burgess, who was replying. And he said, yes, absolutely, all countries spy, our countries spy. But the behavior we're talking about here goes well beyond our traditional espionage. The scale of theft is unprecedented in human history, and that's why we're calling it out. So that's what they're claiming about China. Uh, in the meantime, then, Britain we come back to Britain, has been very proud to announce that the new Protector drone, this uh, replaces the Reaper drone, uh, has been, uh, the first one has arrived in the UK. I believe there are going to be 19 of them. Um, this is going to go to uh, a re-stood up uh, Squadron 31 Squadron, which has been reformed to host these. So these are going to be flying around the world, controlled from uh, 31 Squadron in the UK. Uh, and uh, so Britain's very excited about these, but these, Ryan, what are these? They're little aircraft with 70-foot wingspan or something like this, uh, absolutely standard. In the meantime, what's China doing? It is uh, developing a, a new material, which is going to allow the creation of hypersonic versions of this. Um, and uh, the, so is China really stealing Everything that the West has to provide, I'm not sure that we are innovating in quite the way that Russia and China are at the moment. And so this whole narrative is false. Uh, but it gets worse because this, I thought, was uh, really just an amazing story. So the, U the UK military, uh, sorry, the UK Navy, the Royal Navy has now ditched, according to the Sun, and it's been reported in all the mainstream press now, the custom of Chinese servants on British warships over spy fears because... The guy that's washing the captain's underwear, Brian, might find out where the ship is going to be deployed, pass that on to Beijing. And, and so we've got to kick all the Chinese off the ships and they're going to be replaced with, uh, with Gurkhas instead. Yeah, uh, this is incredible and really unpleasant language there, Chinese servants, uh, because the, these uh, were, in my day, largely people that came from Hong Kong they worked on board the uh, warships. And if you think of the number of men on board, really huge load of washing clothes, a very important one. And uh, they worked extremely hard and they were extremely well valued. So unpleasant emotive language. But yes, we've now got into the paranoia of uh, China is, is the next bad guy. So we're going to get rid of the people who uh, work incredibly hard in order to wash the clothes on board the warships. And keeping the anti-Chinese propaganda going, despite the fact that China doesn't have a coastline in the Arctic, uh, the NATO here, this was uh, uh, on the 20th and the 21st of October, the chair of the NATO military committee, Admiral Bauer, was attending the 10th edition of the Arctic Circle Assembly. Uh, and he was just so concerned about China. He said the increased competition and militarization in the Arctic region, especially by Russia and China, is concerning. The melting ice in the Arctic is creating new sea routes that would facilitate the movement of large vessels and shorten navigation times. We cannot be naive 
and ignore the potentially nefarious intentions of some actors in the region. We must remain vigilant and prepare for the unexpected. Uh, you know, this is despite the fact that, in fact, to deal with the ice, Russia is, is building uh, the world's largest icebreakers. Uh, because, of ice. because of ice. Because of ice, so that they can develop uh, this this channel. Yes, it is being used for trade, and uh, uh, but NATO wants to persuade us that it's uh, for other reasons as well. I believe Admiral Barr, of course, was one of the men who was saying uh, a year ago that the Russians were going to run out of ammunition in Ukraine, and that hasn't happened. So can we trust this man? I'm not sure we can. No. Well, that's it then. Uh, that is it. We'll end there. A very big thank you for everyone that's joined us today, wherever you are in the world. We're getting some really fascinating emails which show us that people in all sorts of different countries are, are now tuning into the UK column. And we'll also say we value all of the emails we get, even the challenging ones at the moment, um, talking about reporting on the highly emotive subject of uh, Israel and Gaza. We are going to continue to do our best and uh, we hope that uh, people appreciate what we do. Finally, a very big thank you to the Alternative View 13 team who put together a really excellent event on Sunday just gone. Uh, really interesting talks, but wonderful, wonderful people who were delighted to be together again after the uh, pause uh, following lockdown. So well done to John and Lisa and the rest of the Alternative View team. We'll end there. If you're a subscriber, stay with us. We'll have extra in just a few minutes. Bye-bye.